the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. This is my very special M3 Rock Festival uh, episode. Joining me from the band Y&T, which of course will be at the festival, is Dave Menichetti. We talk about all kinds of stuff, their career, their latest album called Acoustic Classics Volume 1, and of course participating in the M3 Festival. We also talk to Kelly Kiki of Night Ranger. Their last album came out in 2017 called Don't Let Up. We talk about that and making new music and all kinds of wonderful stuff. And I also ask him a very important question that I've always wanted to know is why is his drum kit not in the center of the stage like every other drum kit I have ever seen in my life? So he explains that. And um, if I recall properly, I think he blamed Sammy Hagar, which is understandable, right? Uh, After that, I have got a very, very unique interview with Moby, That is right. He had been tapped at some point to work on the Guns N' Roses Chinese Democracy album. And um, yeah, I forgot to ask him about that. Um, (laughs) Whoops. But I did get Alan Niven on the phone as my co-host. And I'll I'll be be bringing on Alan in a second here. But um, we discussed uh, Moby's involvement with Chinese Democracy with Alan. So wait for that. Um, But Moby has a new album called Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt, which is, I guess, my life in my when I was 20. Everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. Now, uh, everything hurts. But hey, what are you going to do? Of course, the M3 Festival does take place at the Meriwether Post Pavilion, May 4th, 5th, and 6th, 2018 in Columbia, Maryland. And other than YNT and Night Ranger, we have Queensryche. Sebastian Bach, Ace Fraley. Let me repeat that again. Ace Fraley, because that, that to me is, that's it. You got Ace. We're good. Uh, we've also got uh, Tom Kiefer doing everything that was great about Cinderella. Um, you know, Lynch Mob is there, Last in Line, Slaughter, Warrant. It is going to be an extravaganza, and hopefully uh, the weather will cooperate. That's the that's the one thing when you go to these outdoor festivals is please, no rain, no rain, no rain. And the way things are going this year, uh, even though it's going to be May, it's going to be, please, no snow, no snow, no snow. But anyway, um, just before we head over to the Dave Menichetti of Y&T interview, I have got my favorite, and I'm going to call you a co-host because that's what I like calling you, my favorite co-host from... The old Guns N' Roses and Great White Camps, Sir Alan Niven. And I said Sir because, you know, that's respectful. (laughs) Good day. Oh, good day to you too. I hope you're (laughs) doing well with the weather up there in Canada. Yes. And uh, let's dispense with the Sir. I'm an (laughs) anti-authoritarian, and one of the reasons I chose to live in America was to get away from that kind of feudalism. But it, it, you see, I've been watching so many British shows on um, Netflix and, and Amazon Prime that I have to go with Sir and Mum. Mum. Everything is Mum, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> there's, um, but, there's a sense of English society that I was never comfortable with, you know, related around boarding schools, which I think we've spoken of. And that sense of aristocracy, I think 
it is better to live in a meritocracy where you rise according to your ability and your standards, not where you were born. Well, that's true. That is true. So, so, so speaking of merits and standards, YNT, here's a band that has these great players. You know, Dave just rips on guitar. They've got these great songs, including Summertime Girls. And yet in Canada, they almost sort of don't exist. They've, they've never really played up here. What was your take? Because this was a band that spent a lot of time in California, spent a lot of time touring in California, especially in the 80s. Um, were they around sort of the Sunset Strip and that whole adventure that was the Great White and Guns N' Roses years for you? Well, Mitch, this, this I will say about Yesterday and Today or Y&T. Um, being a California band... Uh, Obviously, a lot of a lot of people were were aware of them, and without fail, any decent guitar player that I knew all rated Dave Manichetti. They all thought he was a great player. Uh, they all made the observation that he never ever phoned it in; that he always brought it, and he has a, an almost universal respect amongst players. Um, and how that did not translate into a greater career, uh, we, we could maybe look at a little bit. But for one thing is for sure, is every guitar player that I knew, you know, from George Lynch, you know, Campbell, obviously, everybody I knew in, in, in L.A. rated him and thought he was really good. Yeah, in fact, they, they really do. And when, and when you mention the name, and, and I had mentioned on my socials that I was going to interview him, and then I mentioned that I did interview him, um, a lot of the rock stars that follow me and that I follow wrote in and said, oh my God, it's so cool that you spoke to him. He's such a great guitarist. And there really is a, a great, great love for him. What I don't understand, though, is when you look back at the catalog, and you look back at songs like Black Tiger and, and Rock and Roll's Gonna Save the World, which, by the way, are part of the new Y&T Acoustic Classics Volume 1 EP, which I should suggest that people pick up. But why were they not playing Madison Square Garden five nights in a row? Well, it, it's the conundrum of any band that's fresh and new is how are you going to rise to a national prominence? And in America you're not just trying to rise to a national prominence, you're trying to rise to a continental prominence. It is such a big country, and that's very cost-intensive in terms of marketing. Um, obviously, with GNR, everybody knows that a major aspect of the strategy that I employed for them was to focus on England early. And my sense of yesterday and today is that I think... An English or a British following would have been the quickest that they could have formed and in that way broken out of Northern California. I rather wonder if you know, they spent enough time connecting to the British press and the British audience because I rather feel that they would have done very well in the United Kingdom had they made that a focus. I agree because they – and how can I put this? Um, when you look at bands that, that – that the UK, especially in Germany and stuff, have embraced bands like a status quo. There, there's this musicianship and this intelligence to what they're doing. And, and 
I don't want to be disparaging by, by saying that American bands aren't intelligent, but but there's there's something about Y and T and the way they put the songs together and the way Dave plays that I think would have really spoken to a European market. And, and in fact, had I been managing them in 84, 85, I would have almost ignored the American market and just set up camp at the beginning of May in England and then toured around and around and around and then come home in October, right? I mean, they 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 seem to have more of an, a European ethic, if that makes any sense. It makes total sense, Mitch. And, you know, nothing's original and nobody has a fresh idea. Uh, obviously, I looked at um, how Jimi Hendrix broke through the United Kingdom. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers broke through the United Kingdom. The Pretenders broke through the United Kingdom. Um, and then you consider the fact that the crucial uh, move that ACDC made was to encamp themselves in London with an attitude of we'll play anywhere and play everything until we're known up here. And that was absolutely critical to uh, the development of ACDC as, a, as an international act. Um, and I think what we both kind of sense about Y&T in the UK is that um, when you mention some other bands, uh, there's there's a hardcore attitude in England that, you know, some American bands are a little bit foo-foo. Um, but Y&T are essentially blue-collar, working class, and that connects to the core British rock audience profoundly. And I think that they had that blue-collar authenticity, and I think that they would have found, found a bigger audience for, through England for the entire world if they'd spent more time there. Yeah. Of course, the other, the other thing is that... Um, you know, maybe the label that they were on at the time didn't see or understand that. I mean, they were on A&M, who had great success with a lot of different um, acts. But I really, you know, I, I'm sure someone will shoot me down on this. But I'm really at a, at a stretch to think of a hard rock band that A&M had success with. Uh, well, um, Brian Adams. <laughs> 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 he, he was A&M as far as I remember. Uh, but, but is that why, for example, when you sent Guns N' Roses over, no, what was it? Was it the uh, Hammersmith Apollo or, or Hammers? Where did you send Guns the first time in England? Well, we started at the Marquee Club when it used to be Right. Oh, that's right. The Marquee, the Marquee. Was, was that yeah. sort of the plan was to go over there and say, hey, we've got these sort of down and dirty sort of you know, working class guys coming over to, to the marquee and, and was that sort of the plan? Conquer England and then come back and conquer the States? Absolutely. And when we went over to play those marquee shows, um, I sat with the band and said, you know, audiences here are a little different. Don't be surprised if they spit at you. Don't be surprised if they heckle you. Don't be surprised if they look at Axel's hair that used to be Buffon in those days. And, Call him a call him a you know a pretty boy wanker. The one thing that you cannot do is cave to that kind of a response. And at the first marquee show, uh, the magic moment for me was when Axel threatened to come off the stage and mix it up with a couple of uh, hecklers in the audience. And from that moment, the audience loved them. Yeah, see, and that's the way to do it. And and in England. I think uh, when, when they throw piss bottles at you, that, that's their way of saying, we love you. <laughs> who, who 
can explain it? Who right. can explain it? I mean, there are those moments when you look at the audience and you go, oh, my God, they terrify me. You, 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 you think that you're suddenly in the middle of some medieval battlefield. It's, <laughs> it's, who can explain it? It's the brave heart of, of rock. And, uh, of course, Y&T is best known, I guess. Well, maybe, maybe that's an overstatement, but very well known for their Down for the Count album that came out in 85. It has that single Summertime Girls on it, which some will say is not pure Y&T, and others will say, hey, it's their biggest hit. So, Well, it might have been their biggest hit, but I think most Y&T fans would raise an eyebrow and say it's actually, you know, Mean Streak and Black Tiger are the essential records, uh, which were both released on A&M in the early 80s. Um, you know, and obviously they had something a little more noticeable later. But if 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 the Black Tiger and Mean Streak had been on a different label, if they'd spent more time in the UK, uh, I think more people would think Dave Manichetti is a guitar god. I agree with that. And of course, um, Mean Streak was produced by Chris Tangredis, who did some great stuff with Tigers of Pantang and so many other bands yep. after that. So here is the one, the only... Dave Manichetti. We are speaking with Y&T's Dave Manichetti. The new album that was just released in 2018 is Acoustic Classics Volume 1. Dave, a great, great pleasure to talk to you. Uh, absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you. Yeah, and, and I was telling you just before we got started, it's been about 22 years of me trying to get an interview with you, and it's always fallen through the cracks for one reason or another. I wasn't available. You but here we are, and this 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 is going to be exciting. So, the first thing uh, that I just want to get to is this M3 festival that's happening in Maryland in May. Um, just talk to me about that festival and being invited to play it, and what it means for you and for the band. Well, it's always been a fun gig. Uh, we played a couple of them, and uh, I think the local community down there is it's it's become sort of the uh, the quintessential festival to, to see uh, this style of, of music and uh, they built that thing over the over the last decade and in, into something that's that's really a lot of fun for everybody uh, including the band members of course because because we all love playing there and uh, hanging out with all of our friends uh, in the music industry as well so it's 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 a fun yearly event and uh, we're happy to be playing it this year yeah yeah it really is a fun event um new album Acoustic Classics Volume 1, your first acoustic collection. Uh, talk to me about the uh, putting these together and reimagining them and, re you know, sort of reorganizing them. And since it's Classics Volume 1, is this sort of telling us that there's going to be a Volume 2 and a Volume 3 coming down the road? Well, that was the original idea, yes, is, is that uh, we would uh, get in the studio and give it a shot and see what, how it comes out. I mean, uh, the idea came through our bass player, uh, Aaron Lee and, and, and Aaron, uh, plays on the side, uh, doing an acoustic thing with, with another, uh, guitar player. And he's been doing that for years. And when he got in the band, um, it wasn't too long after he was in the band and he said, you know, I really think that a lot of these Y&T classic songs would be fantastic done acoustically and uh, he had to sell me on that because i was not really i was not really going with it um i thought well now this music was was built around the, the the power and the majesty of of a very loud electrically played you know and so on and so forth but uh, at the end of the day i thought well you know let's give it a shot 
let's let's see how it goes. And and we all agreed that uh, if we were going to do something like this, we needed to do it with a different flair for the songs. I mean, some of the songs are pretty close to, to, to what they are on record. And then a couple of others, we just gave it its own individual thing that, that would happen acoustically, like such as Black Tiger, uh, the, the bass riff underneath the, the song and the groove for it and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's quite different than the original recording. So uh, that was the idea, was to not just... 100% play the songs exactly like the record version just done acoustically. We wanted to do something special and different and, and give it its own life. And uh, also on top of that, of course, was to play some songs that you wouldn't expect that we would cover acoustically, such as Black Tiger and Barroom Boogie and things like that, where you wouldn't think, oh, well, yeah, well, that, there's one way it could turn into an acoustic. You know, it, it's not, it's not the, the obvious choice which is actually quite kind of cool because some of those songs came out to be the best because they're so unique. Yeah, they, they, they really are. And um, I do want to, you mentioned that, of course, you are always about the bombast and the, and the, and the power and the guitars. The band over the years has been known for these outstanding live shows, just these great, great live shows with incredible live performances. But one of the criticisms has always been that it's been hard to capture that in the studio um, talk to me about the importance of the live performance. And do you feel the same way that sometimes you weren't able to get that on stage energy on, in the studio albums? Yeah, especially initially. It, it was always a, an issue, in as much that we're kind of the kind, we're, well, we're not kind of, we definitely are the types of musicians that it's, it's really about the passion and the energy of the live performance. And not that we couldn't try to recreate that in the studio. We certainly did our best at doing so, but it took us years to get it down to the point where we felt like we were giving our very best that we would live in, into the recording process. It's a very difficult thing. When I first um, met Angus Young, actually, uh, when we very first played a show together in the early 70s uh, or mid-70s, um, one of the first things that he mentioned was how the band themselves always found studio recording difficult because they, like us, you know, really got off on the live performance thing and playing for somebody rather than being sequestered in the studio by themselves with just the engineer and the producer and the, and the clock ticking, you know, totally different vibe. And so he said that the way they got around it was to invite a bunch of friends and people to come out and hang out in the studio so that they had somebody to play for. <laughs> and that, that gave them the vibe that they wanted to, to sort of put the track down the way that they felt they were doing it in the live, in the live way. So we never ended up doing it that way, but I thought that was a brilliant idea. <laughs> and that's kind of, you know, why in some ways uh, for a band like us, it's been a difficult thing for us to get that across. The live thing is, you know, it's its own animal. You know, that's why I always tell people, don't be satisfied with looking at YouTube or watching, you know, back when MTV, when it was mostly just videos. That was, that, that does not stand up to what the music industry is all about, which is to go see an artist, you're going to get the feel of that artist only live when you, when you are interacting with that artist as, as, 
as a, an individual in the in the audience, you, you know, we are, we actually do play off of the vibe in the room. And if you're part of that, you're going to really get the true quality of the, of the artist that way. So, yeah, you know, there's a long answer for you. <laughs> no, but 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 I I do agree with that. And there are some bands to me that just translate live better. If you think of especially early Kiss in the seventies there was something to a Kiss show in 1976 that you just didn't get on the albums. And of course, Metallica, um, you know, I love the I love their records, but there's nothing like seeing the band live and getting the fans screaming back at them. It's, it's just, it's, it's, you know, a special moment. Now, speaking exactly. of, yeah, speaking of, of studio albums, the last one was in 2010, not include, including the acoustic one, but uh, Face Melter. And before that was 1997. Right. So we're really looking at sort of 20 years, two albums. Where are we in terms of a new album? And is it even necessary at this point? I mean, you have Summertime Girls, you have the songs. You can put your name on the marquee and the fans are going to co- uh, they're going to show up anyway. Um are you going to make a new album and is it even necessary to make a new album? Well, whether it's necessary or not is, is kind of one of those situations where we feel like it has to be necessary for us as an artist and for the fans. And that's really what it comes down to, you know, from the standpoint of where we were in, when we were in our heyday, when this music was in its heyday, when it was, really marketed to the young kids of the time that was in the seventies and eighties and partially in the nineties. And so of course, uh, that was, that was the, the vehicle to get you further into your career and, uh, and to show more of what you were all about as a songwriter and as a band. Nowadays, of course, a lot of artists will say, well, it's just, it, it, it why do I want to put, you know, months of time into, you know, coming up with brand new songs and, and going through the whole recording process and spending all this money when we really can't sell that many records like we used to. And, uh, so is it, does it make sense? And plus the fans just want to hear the classic songs live at the shows. So is it really making a difference? That's all. That's that's hence where your your whole you know premise of the question is coming from, and you know we did a record in 2010 and it was Face Melter and it was the first thing we'd done since basically the middle of the 90s, so that was a long time in between, and that was an experiment on our parts as well to see uh, whether or not this was going to make any impact and whether or not we would get fans calling out for those songs on that record when we're playing basically a live show of most of the classic songs from the seventies and eighties. And, and we found that we put together these songs. They were, they were a reflection of where we were at at the time. And it made us feel better as, as artists to go out there and have something new to put in the set list. It fit with the other tunes because we still write similarly to how we did years ago. So it, it was it was a win-win for everybody. It wasn't about making money from the record. It was really about still being valid as an artist uh, and and having something to say still and and communicating that with the fans. And of course, every interview that I've done 
for the last 20 years has been, when are you coming out with a new record? Right. So, you know, it's like, is that just because we don't have anything else to ask you or do you really, does it really matter? And a friend of mine that's also in a popular band, <laughs> we were talking about this one time and he goes, yeah, you know, I'll go out and do a meet and greet and, and half the fans will go, when are you coming out with your new record? And I'll ask him, did you buy our last record we just made? <laughs> you know, and, it, and, you know, of course it's a valid question. And sometimes the fans that are asking you didn't pick up the latest one that you did. And, and it's kind of like, see what I'm saying? <laughs> but I, I don't, I don't really care about that part. It's, it's really more uh, keeping the band valid for ourselves and, and giving the fans something new to, to sort of say, okay, this is, this is where the band has progressed to after all these years, listen to their songwriting now, listen to their playing right now. And, uh, it's, it just gives you more to, to get further into a band that you like. Right. So, so then let me ask you then, how do you keep a, a band valid then? If it's not through mu new music, is it just a live performance? Is that, is that enough? Because I've asked a question to many other artists and they say, well, I don't care if anybody doesn't buy it. I'm an artist. That's what I do. I write songs. That's, I don't care if it's just for, for my daughter and my mom. And I, that's what I do. I write. <laughs> um, so then how, how do you keep a validity if there's not, because even if nobody buys the album, is there not that sort of artistic uh, feeling that I have to do this? This is what I do. I, I wake up in the morning and I have songs in my head and I have to get them on. Right. Right. Well, sure. That, that is part of it. There's no question about it. Now with us, we are the type of songwriters that, uh, at least myself, I'll speak for myself, that I like to carve out a time to, to, to songwrite. I am so busy all the time doing all these other things uh, involved around the business of Y&T that it's, it's, it, it really is a moment that I have to take for myself to say, okay, now this is my songwriting time. And so that's what we have to do in order to come up with a new record is that we've got to carve out a space so that we're not playing consistently where we, you know, constantly on the road, which makes it harder for us to sit and get into the songwriting mode. So that's really where it's at for, for me. And that's how we're going to do our next record. If we're going to do a next record is going to be that I have to get my wife to say, okay, I'm going to give you a couple months off for songwriting and then we're going to go for it for, for that for that standpoint well I, cer I certainly hope it happens uh now you do mention all these other things you're doing you do have the the Menachetti wines um talk to me about that interest and and finding sort of a creative outlet away from music and putting that business together because it's not uh an easy thing to do and it's certainly a very highly competitive marketplace especially in wines yes it is uh perfect example I, I've been into wine for a decade and a half, I'd say. Uh, not that long by most people's standards, especially for my age, but uh, I got into wine sort of late in life, and my, my, myself and my wife became avid wine enthusiasts. We, we started visiting all the local wineries that, that we eventually came to love, and of course, you know, along the way, you learn about wine, you learn about uh, differentiating your palate uh, for the different varietals that are out there and so on and so forth. And as it turned out, 
there was a local winery that produces some of the finest California wines, uh, and, and they have a place that that's fairly close to my house. So I would visit there with my wife consistently. We became friends with the owners and some of the staff and through those years, a couple of the people in the staff would say, Dave, you should come up with your own wine because you've proven that you are such a lover of wines. You have a very good palate and it would be cool if you could come up with some wines that you particularly love to share with, with other people. And I thought it, it was kind of an insane idea. I said, well, that's, you know, I love and enjoy wine, but I don't want to get in the business of it. Well, of course, years later, I decided I'm going to go for it. And what do some of my friends in the actual wine business that are wineries say to me? Oh, you're getting into the wine business. You must be crazy. And I said, I am crazy. I'm a musician. I said, that's not, nothing's going to be any harder than trying to make it in the music business. Well, I would say this is equally as hard. There's no question. You're absolutely right. It's a super competitive business. Uh, we have tried to establish ourselves amongst the fan base. And we have succeeded in doing so for that. But the fan base is not necessarily a wine drinking bunch by, I would say, the majority. I'd say there's certainly a lot that are, but and a lot that are starting to be. But we need to get ourselves sort of started with the wine crowd as well. So that's, that's always a difficult thing, especially when uh, we're on the road seven or eight months out of the year. And, uh, you know, so we're trying to help get some help uh, to, to sort of get this thing a little bit more established, but it's doing pretty, pretty well from, from a standpoint that we've only had two releases out there. So it's not bad. It's a nice start. Um, I want to go over here to, to down for the count, uh, mostly because I'm in Montreal and the producer, Kevin Beamish was born in Montreal. He, he handled REO Speedwagon's high infidelity. Uh, and of course it has, you, you know, one of your greatest songs, summertime girls, Talk to me about that album and and putting it together and working with Kevin. He, I mean, he comes off of this you know record with with REO Speed. Well, I mean, three four years after, what was it like working with him? And just talk to me about sort of the pressures of putting that album together because as the scene started expanding as Quiet Riot and as as Bon Jovi and as all these well, Bon Jovi maybe not in '85 started expanding. Talk to me about that time and that album, and then of course we'll get to that song in a second. Sure. Well, the record, the, the, the making of this record, uh, down for the count, was probably our most most tortured from the standpoint that the record company had shown, you know, well, we had shown them that we have what it takes to to compete in the marketplace. And they pretty much fell down on most of their job duties as far as for us as an, as, as, you know, getting us across to the U S market. Um, A&M records was the record company and A&M in Europe and the UK and Japan were kicking ass and doing all the right stuff. And this, their staff understood the music and they understood the fan base in their countries, but the U S market with A&M, they really would have rather dealt with other styles of, of music than ours. I mean, we just weren't their cup of tea. And we faithfully and stupidly hung in there with them for the 
vast majority of probably the biggest time frame that our, that, that music was going to be valid. So uh, we kind of lived and died by the sword with A&M and A&M had finally started to see the success that they wanted to get to with, with a couple of, uh, of singles that we had out there, Don't Stop Running, and uh, Mean Street did fairly well when it got released. And then we released Summertime Girls on the live record uh, studio version. Right. And that thing was in the top 10 most requested songs in the country. While we were out on one of the best tours that we could be out of that particular time, which was Motley Crue and us. So it was all coming together. And I guess they figured at that point, well, you know, we need more of this. And, and we need more of the summertime girls kind of vibe to get this band over the, over the top because we don't know how to do it, <laughs> you know, in, in a standard way, like maybe Atlantic or Warners could do for their artists that were our style of music. They just didn't have the staff that believed in our style. And so they kept trying to convert us into a style that they could understand and market. And market. And so that, yeah, exactly. And that, and that record was absolutely the most polluted by the A&R staff. They were on our cases. They were saying, you should do cover tunes. You should do this. You should do that. Let's bring in an outside songwriter. Let's do this. It was just a madness kind of thing. Uh, we thought we already had the goods before uh, we even released Summertime Girls on a live record because. And, and, and Open Fire, was, by the way, was a great album. Open Fire. Oh, yeah, absolutely I mean, was. Yeah. Because it, it was, was. live. And, and, and the reason, yeah, and the reason we did Open Fire was because A&M said, we don't think you have the, the tunes. And, uh, and so we're like, well, wow, we're going to miss this whole summer you know, of playing and the possibility of getting, you know, this tour with Motley Crue and some other people. So let's do something. Let's not just sit on our hands here and wait until, you know, we keep submitting more and more songs to A&M before they finally say, okay, you're ready. And we've already lost a whole season. So uh, our manager said, well, you've always been known as a live band. And that live, you're better than ever kind of thing, just like we were talking about. And so why don't we do the obvious and do a live record? And of course, it was a brilliant idea. And we did it at, at, you know locally with our own hometown fans two nights. And uh, we had originally submitted Summertime Girls to A&M at the same time as all the other tunes that we thought we were going to start on a new studio record. And I remember that the A&R guy, Carter, had uh, had told our manager, what the hell is this song? It's crap. And I kicked it across the parking lot. Uh, it was in a cassette. And, and I thought, okay, well, that's fine. It's no big deal to us. I mean, you know, it's just the song that we came up with. We thought it was fun. No problem. So we just won't do it. And that's fine. But then we had this idea of coming up and doing this live record. And we thought, hey, it's a good song. Why not? Why don't we just do it live? And, and that way, at least we, we got a chance to get the song out on vinyl before, you know, we just said goodbye to it completely. Well, we did the, the rough mixes in, uh, in a mobile studio in A&M's parking lot because her manager thought that would be a great idea to get the A&M staff all hyped up on 
getting, you know, putting some promotion behind this. And he'd go in there with all these rough mixes and show the staff. Well, he went in there with Summertime Girls Live, and they got halfway through the song, and they go, what the hell is this song? What, what, what's this? Oh, my God, you guys got to go in and record this in the studio immediately. This is a super, super huge hit. And so, you know, three months before, when, when the A&R guy kicked it across the parking lot, the other A&R staff thought this was a brilliant song. And we better stop what we're doing right now go into a recording studio with Kevin Beamish and record it legitimately. And then we'll put the recorded version on the live record since that was the only thing we could get out right now for the summer. So that's how it all kind of put together. And then finally, when we did that, we, we finished doing the, 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 the actual studio record. And they said, well, you have to put it on that too, because it's a strange thing to have. A, a recorded a studio recorded version on a live record and not have it on a, on a recorded on a record studio. record right <laughs> right a record record so that's the story of that song and the story of the torture of having to deal with the staff at A&M trying to please ourselves be our own people and try to keep some of our dignity in the face of Basically, AM saying, if you don't do it our way, you're off the label. So uh, it was it was it was crazy, man. I mean, we had some great songs on Down for the Count, and I felt like that record was probably because it was the most tortured. Maybe it came off that way to the fans too, because there was so many different styles of songs on that of us trying to do what we could do to be ourselves and at the same time be something that A&M wanted us to be. So I think it fans, was just, you know, it was just, yeah. I think fans, you know, fans dig it. And, and of course that Motley Crue tour, and, and you'll correct <laughs> me if the rumors are wrong, but that's, that's, you were the band that was too wild for Motley Crue where they, they had to come and tell you guys to tone it down. You're like, say what now? <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that was a strange thing. Well, you know, we had two guys in the band, three guys actually, that were super partiers, two of them for sure. And um, <clears throat> they were already super partiers before we were on that tour. And I guess that, you know, every so often, maybe after every other show or so, the guys and us would get together and hang out after the show and party. And a couple of our guys, I guess we're trying to show the guys that were known to be the hardest partiers, Motley Crue, that we ain't no slouch either. And, uh, it was kind of like a, kind of like a party, you know, kickoff where who's going to be the baddest in the, you know, well, we got down to the point where there were so many nights when the guys, I guess, out partied a few of the guys from Motley Crue that Motley Crue's road management started noticing the difference that these guys were, you know, no, were definitely worse for the wear the next day. <laughs> And, uh, and so they came up to our manager and said, can you tell your guys to just lay off a bit? <laughs> but, but I mean, you're, so, you're the only band in the history of rock where you, you were too much of a party for Motley Crue. I mean, they were the Kings and, and but apparently Y&T were the Kings. Well, they, there may have been others as well, but maybe it, it wasn't so publicized. <laughs> right. It was a kind of a, it, you know, it was a double-edged sword in a way. I mean, because of because of all of that partying, 
attitude, you know, that some of the guys in Y&T were some crazy mothers. Well, we were, and they were, and uh, unfortunately, it cost them their jobs. And uh, that's that's where it kind of came down to eventually, because if we were going to go on as a band, uh, we had to we had to sort that out because that part of things ended up screwing up us as well. Not only was it messing up Motley Crue on the tour, it was messing up our band in, you know, internally. So, um, you know, it was what it was. It was, but, what it was. Uh, you know, the 80s, the, the 80s were uh, a crazy time, as were the 60s and 70s. If you ask some of those people touring at that time. Well, it was a magical you know, it time. Was, it was. Yeah, yeah it, it really was, was. It was madness. Now, I, I want to set up a question about contagious so i'll start with this uh and it's about summertime girls and i, and I want to get into to contagious with it but years ago i was sitting with doug feeger who was the lead singer of the knack and i was telling him about how great it was that my sharona was out there it's a fantastic track and he said you know what he said it's a golden albatross around my neck he goes yes mitch look at the pool look at the car look at this it's it's all paid for by my sharona but he says i tell you what Every time we brought a song to a record company after, they would say, that's really nice, Doug, but I don't hear a My Sharona. Go write another one. Sure. Um, right? Sure. And, and you know that feeling because you went from A&M over to Geffen for, for Contagious. Did you, in, did you have that golden albatross like Doug where Summertime Girls are such a big hit and we all know that that's Y&T, but did record companies after go, yeah, Dave, um, hmm. I don't hear another summertime girl. So, would you mind going to write some more? I mean, did you did you encounter that kind of similar thing? Um, and here's the strange thing. Right. No. Okay. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Okay. Because we did not want to get signed on the basis of summertime girls alone. Because summertime girls, next to the other hundred or so in our catalog songs is pretty much an albatross of sorts. Uh, it, it is not exactly 100%. If you come see a Y&T concert, you know, we're going to play two hours and Summertime Girls is going to be kind of like, okay, but it kind of fits now. And because of the way we're doing it, there's no keyboards. It's all just two guitars, bass, and drums along with all the other tunes. But people are there to you see Rescue Me and Mean Streak and and forever and and you know all these other tunes that that are the classic y&t songs and for some people we we, we head into summertime girls and you can kind of see the yawn on some rock fans faces out there and so a lot of people love it still so so it, it is one of those songs where we're, we're glad that it did something for us but we don't want to hang our hats on that Right. We want to hang our hats on a, on, on a on decades of other songs that we have written. Uh, so what happened with Geffen is we get, we, we were just at the end of that Motley Crue tour. Right. And we were, we were really upset because we'd finally come out with this new studio record and A&M just kind of laid on it. And we were, so frustrated because summertime girls was still killing it still in heavy rotation on MTV and still killing it on radio. And we're out still on this tour. And we're like, well, what are these guys doing? And, you know, obviously we've already known they've, they've screwed up so many things with our career. This just can't go on. We, you know, we got to stop being afraid that if we lose a and M, we're never going to get another deal. We're just going to have to do it. And so while we're on the, on the road and literally in the tour bus, we're having our manager 
look at at uh, in LA, look at getting us off the label and and just quietly without making any waves to A and M, finding out if anybody was actually interested in it uh, in in the band. And so he said, I've already got interest from two different companies, but you know, let's do it. And I said, let's get off of this friggin' deal and get out of A and M. So in the middle of that tour, I say, well, maybe the last third of that tour, uh, we got off of A&M and then the tour ended and we go out with Aerosmith. Well, Aerosmith is coming back right. after years of, you know, having issues mm-hmm. and they're on Geffen and guess who is one of the most hot, honest companies was Geffen and it was John Kaladner. And John Kaladner, right. the A&R guy at Geffen, mm-hmm. came backstage to our very first show with Aerosmith on their tour. We were only out with them for two weeks after the Motley Crue thing. And it was in Dallas. And he comes back to have a meeting with us after our show. And he goes, A&M are idiots. My niece could have broken Summertime Girls into top 40. You know, anybody could have done it. You know, they, they, cause they pulled the funds on us right before it was going into the top 40. It was a classic move by A&M, but anyway, and, and so he said, here's what I want out of, out of Y&T. I want those cool riffs you guys came up with that have made you the popular band that you are with the fan base. He goes, I don't want you to come up with a hit single for me or any stuff like that. I, I want you to do what you did when you very first got together you know, where it was all about, you know, what we were into. And so that was an exact opposite of what we expected. And it was exactly what we wanted. So basically John Kaladner was, was basically, he was playing to us. I mean, he's playing to the audience and, and it made sense to us. And, uh, we, you know, went with him for a couple more weeks and did some more talking and decided, okay, let's go because this is going to be our way out is that we, we don't have to come up with a, with an obvious hit single for these guys. I mean, obviously they want radio compatible songs, but we thought we had already written plenty of those on previous records. So we're just going to go at it. And, uh, that's the way it started out with, with, with Gaffin for sure. Okay. Uh, talk to me though, about the, if you, what's the word I want to look for? The politics of it, because you have contagious that comes out in 87 on Geffen, but they also put out white snakes, uh, 87 album. They put out appetite for destruction. They put out Aerosmith permanence right. vacation. I mean, three of the right. biggest albums, not only of that year, but of that decade of that sort of rock movement, if you right. want to call it. When Contagious comes out, and I'm up in Canada, I barely hear about it, but I heard about the other three. Yep. D- did you find that Geffen sort of went, yeah, well, this is great, but wow, look at what Guns is doing for us. Look what, I mean, did they give absolutely. you your due? Okay. Yeah, absolutely exactly what happened. I mean, Kaladner fought for us. He fought for us to get on the label. He fought for us for the label to do something for us. And unfortunately, he was up against a juggernaut. He was up against the Guns N' Roses release and the Aerosmith release and, and, and Whitesnake release that were kicking ass on radio, kicking ass in the public perception of what was important at the time. And so we'd go out on the road and we'd be hanging with a local Geffen rep who's going to take us to the radio and to a local record store to do an in-store. 
and he's basically only sitting there talking about all the other artists that are kicking ass. <laughs> and and it was real obvious that we got buried. It was a bad time for us on that label. If we would have maybe been on that label two years before and released, you know, record a couple, you know, right around the time that we released uh, Down for the Count, it, it may have been a completely different ballgame. Right. But we got in at the worst possible timing we could have for Geffen Records. And those artists just buried us. And we, we were, I'd go in to Geffen in LA and with a band and you could just see it. The, 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 the young staff that was involved in promotion and, you know, the art staff, everybody, all the staff, they couldn't care less about us. We're a bunch of old rockers to them, even though we were still in our thirties. You know what I mean? It was just like, wow. You know, all they cared about was the buzz that was going down with Guns N' Roses. Honestly, that was all they right. cared about. And, and, you know, and, to and, be fair to Geffen though, and I don't want to, Oh, I, I completely get it. Right, I, because I, I totally understand. It's yeah. three it's three career defining albums and three sort of um, iconic, you know, American culture. I mean, these are not just three albums; these are three albums, right? I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. right. Um, so yeah. you know, you, you have to give it. To, now, I don't know how much time you have left. I got a, another gazillion questions, but. Sure. Um, sure. But let, let, let me let me move on here. You you do have the documentary um, on with the show. It has been delayed. It it is a little bit more labor intensive, perhaps than than was first thought. Uh, talk to me about that. And and when do you sort of see or foresee the end and the release of on with the show? Labor intensive to the maximum. Yes. And and unfortunately for us, I mean, we hired on. Um, a couple of buddies of ours that we knew were good at what they did with, with video production. And they wanted desperately to do this and they pitched us and they gave us a good game pitch. And we knew that they would do their best and would do a great job. But, you know, had, had they really known what they were going to be in for? Probably not even close. In fact, I know not even close because you know, a year into it, when we thought we'd already be ready to, you know, wrap it up, they're only about a halfway through doing all the interviews with the people that want to be in the in the film. So it just got to a point where um, we we just figured, okay, look, they are doing a great job. They they gave us the roughs of of the stuff they've done up to the point, and oh my God, it's entertaining as hell. It's, it looks great. It sounds great. They're, they're just doing a, a fantastic job, but they're doing it at a snail's pace from the standpoint of guys that do this for a living every single day, day in, day out. And they, you know, put it through like a, like a regular record where it's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to record it this time. We're going to edit it here. We're going to have it done and out by block. You know, these guys, this is their primary job and it's been their primary job for three years. And it's, it's just, you know, it's just meticulous to get it right. And, uh, and they're, they're, they're spending every last second to make sure that they do it in the best way that they possibly can, because they already know now that they've pissed off the fan base <laughs> because, uh, we did, you know, a, um, 
uh, one of these deals. What is it called? Uh, Kickstarter, right? Right. Sorry. Uh, right. The Kickstarter. Uh, thing. Yeah, the Kickstarter campaign just to get the funds to do it in the first place. And that thing went on for a month, and and we got over twice as much money as what we were asking for. So, it, you know, obviously the ideas out there, the fans were loving the idea. They were expecting something within a year. Now it's three years later. And, of course, you know, we're getting hell from the fans, and we're taking it, even though it's not us that's actually doing the production work on this. But we're saying, look, at this point of the, of the process, the guys have got it mostly handled. It's going to get done and we want to give them their due. They spent three years on this project as their only main job. And to take it out of their hands right now at the very last point of when they're almost ready to wrap it up before editing is uh, is going to be pretty brutal on these guys and, and brutal on the process. So I think that it's uh, it's just one of those things where we just have to let it let them do their thing. And when it's done, it's done. Now, I thought it was going to be done last year. I probably thought it was going to be done the year before <laughs> originally, but uh, is it going to be done this year? Yes, it has to be done this year. And uh, if it means, you know, whatever we have to do to make it happen, that's just what it's going to be. But it's, it's, it really is turned it's turning out fantastically. And there's interviews with hundreds of people in our, in our background, not only all of the original members that they could interview. Of course, Phil had already passed away by that time, so that was not possible. But everybody else was interviewed that, that had ever been in the band, and extensively. I mean, Leonard and Joey were interviewed a lot, and they are, they are on this a lot. And unfortunately, they both passed away within the last year. So um, the fact that we were able to get that done you know, is, is going to be a good, a good thing for, uh, you know, everybody that's, that's a Y&T fan. But, uh, there were probably 60 or 70 different rock stars that wanted to get involved and, and have been taped for it. There's all kinds of people that have been involved in our career, whether they be producers, engineers, uh, radio personalities, uh, local, um, sort of, uh, music personalities. It, it, it's all there. And, and of course, the main thing is, is that I was interviewed for probably five separate days, uh, both by them, by another person, by uh, Eddie Trunk. Uh, Eddie Trunk is, is going to be on this as well. He's going to narrate some of it. And uh, so, you know, there's, there's a lot to be done still, but... God help us. We got to get this thing done and get out this year. Yeah, I think I think so. I think the fans really want to see it. And and if you need somebody else to narrate, I'm I'm also available. But uh, I love Eddie. Okay, Eddie's <laughs> Eddie's great. Um, boy, and, and I just want to before we run out of time here. Uh, In Rock We Trust was of course produced by uh, Colonel Tom Allen, who's done incredible amount of work with Judas Priest. They have a new album out, Firepower, which is just kicking ass. Uh, just talk to me about working with Tom because to me as a as a rock fan, as a metal fan, he, he's like right up there. He's top three as a guy who just gets it in terms of getting sounds. What was it like for you working with him and, and what did he bring to your sound and what did sort of – did you learn from him and what did he sort of learn from you? Because he – I mean would you agree that he's sort of one of these guys that just gets it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and we had 
worked with a, another really fun producer before that, which was Chris. Chris Tangredi. I was going to ask you about that. On, on Mean Streak. On, on the Mean, yeah, yes. on Mean Streak, and of course, unfortunately, Chris has passed away Correct. in the last couple of months. Yeah. And uh, Chris and Tom both were of the same ilk, in as much that they were British guys that just had their finger on the pulse of this style of rock and roll. And we didn't have to explain it to them. We didn't have to show them what we wanted. They knew what, what, how to get it out. of. And, um, it was such a pleasure to work with, with, with Tom. Uh, he, he's just one of the sweetest guys and just a very, very passionate man. I mean, he would get frustrated even with the record company many times, you know, cause they'd be asking him every day. So how's it going? Are you getting this out of it? Are you getting that? And he's like, quit bugging me. We got great stuff going on here. Just let me have my reins to it, you know? And he was one of those kinds of guys. He, you know, he knew what he, he wanted and he knew that we had what, what we needed to have for the record. And, and, uh, we just got the, got it done, you know, and, and he had a great engineer with him at that time, Andy Deganall. And Andy's out of Florida. In fact, I just saw him because we were just playing uh, the Monsters of Rock Cruise. And uh, we did our first show at the Preport party, and he came out. And I haven't seen him since that record. So it was fun to, 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 to sort of be going back and, and you know, reflecting on, on the making of that record with him and Tom Allen. It was, it was a, an amazing record. It really was. I, still one of my favorites of our entire career, even though... Some people always go, well, it's not one of the top three, you know, Earthshaker, Black Tiger, Mean Streak. And it's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> they're all good. You know, they're, they're, they're all slightly different from each other for sure. But, uh, yeah, he, he, he's fantastic. Man. And I, I, I love the man dearly. I've seen him a couple of times since. He, he came to a show in Belgium a couple of years ago, and, and uh, he looks and acts the same to me. He's, he's still got it. Yeah, Tom, Tom is great. And uh, it's funny because I, I – before I asked the question, I was thinking, do I talk Mean Streak and Chris first, or do I go with Tom? And so I, I went with Tom. Now, I, I, I know we're, we're at 45, so I'll finish with this. A story that you've told a hundred times, but, you know, I'll, I'll get my own version of it. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne comes in uh, and, and meets you and says, gets on his hands and knees and says, Dave, you gotta be my guitarist. You gotta, you gotta join my band. And of course, that's a great compliment because when you look at the guys he's had, whether it's Randy or Zach or Jake, um, he doesn't just pick up fluff. I mean, when Ozzy says, I want you in my band, that means, yeah, you're – talk to me just about that and, and, and what did it mean that, that he wanted to have you because, you know, he doesn't take slouches. He, he takes the best of the best, and I think you're one of the best of the best. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the thing about that, <laughs> that was uh, completely off the wall, of course, because I, you know, I, I'd never met Ozzy. I had no idea he was going to come out to a show. Uh, it was, we were doing for those about to rock tour with, with ACDC in, in the UK, just the two of us. And we'd spent a month together. And uh, the last show of that tour was in, in Dublin, Ireland. And um, he was there as well as, um, Oh God, I'm trying to remember who else. I a few other major rock stars that happened to be in the audience that night. Um, but you know, I, I, I hadn't really known about it. I didn't know what was going on. All we knew is just, you know, you're on at this time, do your 45 minutes and get off. <laughs> so we, we did our set. We, we came off stage 
walking back to our dressing room. And um, here's uh, Sharon and Ozzy standing at the entrance to our dressing room. And just as you said, is exactly how it came down. Um, he got on his knees. He said, you've got to join my band, et cetera, et cetera. And I looked at the band members as they passed by, and they had this very strange look on their face, um, wondering what I was going to say, I guess. Uh, but of course I, I composed myself as quickly as possible after being in shock and, and just said, thank you so much for the offer, but I'm going to stay where I'm at. And, uh, he went on to elaborate why he needed me and why he thought I would be perfect for his band because he could see that I was a crazy guy moving on stage, kicking, you know, going all over the place, you know, just, just full of energy and full of this thing that he liked. And uh, at the time he had somebody taking the place of his original guitar player, of course, who had passed away. He had Brad Gillis, which is a friend of mine from the Bay area. And Brad was playing with him. And, and he said that, you know, I like Brad and everything, but Brad's so square. He never moves on stage and he dresses not like a rock star. And I have to, I have to grab him by his hair and move him around the stage. And you just got it, man. And I'm just like, okay. Um, I appreciate that, man. But, um, and no, no, you know, disrespect to Brad, Brad and him for him, I guess was just not the right guy, but I heard the live record that Brad played on. I thought Brad killed it. And, uh, you know, regardless of whether he moved around as much as Ozzy wanted him to or not, he was a brilliant player. Um, oh, but yeah. anyway, that's how it went down. And, and, you know, I, I, my whole thing ever since I was, and I was asked to, to do a lot of things besides just Ozzy over the years. My thing is I would much rather be a, a, a part of something that we all started and, and was in our blood than to be somebody else's replacement, uh, doing material that's not mine, that got nothing to do with anything that I creatively put together. Uh, you know, it, it was just really about why I got into being a musician in the first place. Uh, I didn't want to be anything but our own. We didn't want to be anything but our own you know, our own people, our own uh, songwriters, our own, you know, band members getting together and coming up with ideas and making it work for us. That, that was what it was all about. So that, that's, it was a simple decision for me. And I, and I think also the right decision, because you look at it now, you have, what are we at here? 34 years, I guess, of, of career, you know, 30 years plus. (laughs) And and a lot more of the guitar- that. <laughs> more more yeah, but but as Y and T right Y and T going back so, so, yeah. so, so right and and you look at the guitarists whether they're in White Snake or they're in they come in and it's five years six so uh, you know you might have sold yourself short for five years but then you know with people but here you know anyway so uh, good decision and um, and just uh, quickly I'll finish with this uh, I, I just want to pay tribute of course to Joey passed away a year ago. Uh, in March, and so uh, much respect for him. And do you have any any yeah. any words about Joey? Of course, because you know fans love him, fans miss him. Of course, yeah, yeah. Well, Joey, Joey is exactly as you saw him. He was as energetic and excited to be a rock star as anybody I've ever seen, and and I mean that in in uh, with respect and also with a smile on my face because 
we used to call Joey a groupie in a group. Uh, he was the kind of guy that if you went over his house, he had pictures of every rock star he was into from circus magazine, from, you know, art shock or, you know, whatever the, 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 the particular rag was of the day, you know, I mean, it was, he, he had those guys all plastered all over his wall. He studied it. He knew all about everybody. I mean, if you want to know anything about who's doing what now, ask Joey, <laughs> you know? So he was loving being in the position that he was. And, um, and he gave it his all every bit as it always was for everybody in, in Y&T and always has been, which is why the fans still come back and see us because they know we're going to give them their money's worth when they come and see our show. And that's what, that's what he was always like. He was, he was a fan of the music as much as he was, uh, instrumental in making, um, this whole thing happen for Y&T. He came up with a lot of great riffs a lot of chord patterns, a lot of ideas over the, over the years that were, you know, important things for us. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say he's the greatest rhythm guitar player in rock. This guy's the greatest lead guitar player. This guy's the greatest rock. You know, I, I don't like to say anybody's the greatest at anything. They're all fantastic at what they do if they've got the talent for it. And I would say Joey, certainly one of the top guys, of just laying down a rhythm guitar as straight ahead and as chunky as you can get. Uh, that's, that was his thing. And, uh, and he did it incredibly well and he rarely made mistakes. He just was so concentrated on what he was doing. It was just a really awesome guitar player to have in our band. Yeah. Yeah. We he, miss him. Oh yeah. And, 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 and as fans, we miss him too. And, and just, uh, Thank you so much. I, I know uh, we had scheduled like twenty minutes. We're almost at an hour. I could I could do this for another three. But but thank you so much. We'll see you, of course, in May in uh, Maryland at the M3 Festival, and as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Cheers. Bye bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. Rock Talk. Welcome back, and uh, joining me for this part of the show, it is Little Caesar singer Ron Young. They have a new album out called Eight. You can check out the band at Facebook.com, Little Caesar Official. Uh, good day, Ron. Uh, thank you for joining good me day, on the show. Yes. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yes, and of course, uh, I do encourage uh, folks to check out the Eight album. That is a, a great a slice of rock and roll, right? Since thanks, it's doing really well. We're like charting all over the world on iTunes and Amazon. We're really kind of shocked. Yeah, so. I saw that, and in fact, I'm I'm Danish, or I was born in Canada, but we're from a Danish background. And you're number nine on the iTunes store in Denmark. Yeah, I know. It's actually kind of cool. It is really cool, actually. <laughs> you know, it's nice to actually do something and have people either hear it and then like it. It's it's really, yeah. At this at this stage of the music industry, we're really grateful for it. It's great. Yeah. So uh, on this part of the show, I've got uh, drummer Kelly Kigi, of course, of Night Ranger. They are playing the M3 Festival in nice. May. Um, have you ever played the M3 Festival, by the way? We haven't. And we heard, you know, our buddies Junkyard played on it, I think, last year. And they were raving about it. And they, I saw these great pictures. And then I heard that they had that – they had some sort of uh, structural failure of where they held the, the event. 
and I think they rebuilt it or repaired it. There was some weird storm or something that came through, and they're bouncing back and fixing that whole thing or moving it. Don't really know, but it looked like just a great festival, and people are really enthusiastic about it, and they always have a great blend of bands. So we, we'd love to get on it. We've never been on it. but Wow. Well, well, well I'll, I'll, uh, I'll make a call and see if I can get you on it, because I think Little Caesar would fit in great. I mean, I know my friends in the Killer Dwarves have played it, and they say just nothing but great stuff. They're just like, man, yeah. this festival is so great. And they had an 11 in the morning slot. And they were like, oh, it's going to be awful. And yet there was like 12,000 people already waiting. Yeah. And it's like, wow, okay. So, yeah, the great, you know, uh, great festival. Now, as far as Night Ranger goes, were you a huge sort of Night Ranger fan g- growing up? Or did you sort of stick to what Top 40 Radio was playing? Yeah, I was not a huge fan, you know, um, like Sister Christian, which is just a great iconic rock song. It's just one of those. It's, you know, um, and I heard this stuff on the radio and, you know, I've bumped, there's been so many guys that are kind of, um, and side projects that are based off that. And they're all really great guys and great players and stuff. And, um, you know, I never dug deep into their catalog, but they always had a, a, a great credibility for like AOR rock band, you know? Yeah. They, they, they write some great tunes, great, great stuff on the radio. And yeah. Of course- so- see songs, they, they had songs, you know, and that was always a good thing and, and really good players and personalities in the band. So, you know, uh, they're spinning off and doing, you know, yeah. doing the whole damn Yankees thing and everything. And, now they're they're kind of reformed, I guess, and and going out and playing yeah. the M3 festival, so that's great. Yeah, and of course, uh, that when a band's been around for so long as as they have, it really does come down to songs. You don't have songs; doesn't matter how you look, doesn't matter how you sing. If there's no song, nobody cares. And they have songs, and and they have Brad Gillis, who of course spent some time with Ozzy. Yeah, you know exactly. That's the thing. There's always been, you know, it's one of those things. There's always bands that they might have had commercial success, but you know, from the from the other bands out there, kind of credibility as far as players and everything, and and they've always had really good players and good guys in the band. And you, like you say, guys that knew how to craft a song, and that's always, you know, it's always easy to reform that and bring it back to their their original fan base and and so on because there's there's both musical and songwriting credibility there, and that surpasses once the the flavor of the week kind of goes by depending on what's big and what's on mtv or what's on radio at the time in retrospect over time and it always comes back to being you know people get excited about that because you get to see the personalities and people that you've been following for a long time and so it's great yeah, it really is and uh, what else is great here before we get over to uh, kelly keegi is little caesar has a new album called Eight. It is available now. Do check out Little Caesar Official on uh, Facebook for all your music needs. And apparently, apparently, uh, if you have a bad pizza, you can uh, check in with Ron and he'll he'll make it right. Yes. Well, but you, you have to go to our littlecaesar.net website if you want to complain about your pizza. And um, you know, we get at least one angry pizza letter uh, a week. And uh, we we kindly respond and say, well, very sorry that your pizza pizza was substandard. And um, you know, while while we apologize for our bad pizza, why don't you check out our latest release named Eight? Maybe you'll care for that. <laughs> so, yeah, because that's a that's a great slice of rock and roll right there. A, there you go, a great slice of rock and roll, Mitch. 
Thank you for coining our new marketing phrase. I really appreciate that. <laughs> no worries. And on that, here is the one, the only, from Night Ranger, drummer Kelly Keegi. We are speaking with Night Ranger's Kelly Keegi. Uh, Kelly, a great pleasure to speak with you. The last time we spoke, actually, was an interview for the last album, Don't Let Up. So it's it's nice to talk to you here in, uh, another year later. Um, and we're going to talk M3 Festival. Um, nice. Mitch, how are you? Good. Good surviving, uh, boy, just a lot of rock and roll interviews. So let, let's get started here with the last album mm -hmm. and, and where we are in terms of recording a new album. Of course, Don't Let Up was March of 2017. We're 2018. Where do we sort of see ourselves going in terms of a new album in the next year or two? Um, actually, we, you know, we haven't really thought about it, but, you know, we're, we always look at 2019 probably as a year that we're working on it. And uh, who knows when it will come out. But, you know, it's, it's you know, it's always kind of the, one of those things where we we all live in, in, in different states, you know. So we have to, like, plan it and get together. And like like we did on the last three records, we, you know, we'll get together in a room, the three of us, and kind of start ideas. And then we'll bring, you know, everybody else in as, you know, as we uh, as we have uh, those opportunities, you know. I mean, you know, we have to plan like, you know, we'll do a session at my place and then we'll do a Jack's and Brad, you know, like that. And we'll get in a room and we'll all just kind of, you know, just follow our instincts. You know, that's how we've done the last three records. And it's kind of it's kind of interesting because usually, you know, you come in with a bunch of pre-written songs, you know, everybody comes in with two or three ideas or or songs, you know. But these last three records, including, you know, Don't, Don't Let Up, have been done just kind of off the cuff as sort of speak, you know, where you just, you just kind of get in a room and you just, you know, somebody has a riff or somebody has a, a chorus idea. And then you just, you know, you just kind of follow that and, 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 you know, um, you know, just kind of ring it out as, um, as, as you would say, you just kind of go in there and explore the ideas of chord changes and keys and melodies and, and, uh, and subject matter lyrically. Talk to me about the addition of Carrie Kelly to the band. You had Joel Hoekstra for a while, who was absolutely fantastic. Move over to Whitesnake. Carrie came in, of course, Don't Let Up was sort of the first studio album with him. You, of course, had done the uh, 35 Years and a Night in Chicago with him, too. What does Carrie add to the band? And does it sort of give a, a fresh perspective to the songs when you have a new guy coming in there interpreting it his own way? Sure. Absolutely. Just like um, as it did with with Eric Levy, when he joined the band, we we had a different perspective, you know, because he comes from like more of a, like a jazz fusion side. So it was really nice to have his input on somewhere in California and, um, you know, uh, um, the album after that, which was uh, High Road. Um, so, yeah, it, it definitely very much is, you know, like, you you know, you bring like new perspective and new ideas into the whole mix. And it, it definitely helps the process because, you know, sometimes it's not an easy process. Um, you know, you might get stuck somewhere, you know, but, but it, it, you know, it's, it's been flowing so easily with, with, uh, with the two of them in there. I mean, Carrie comes in, you know, from, you know, being a hired gun and um, like we, you know, we were um, asked to do a tour on off season up in Canada with Journey and uh, Loverboy, 
and it was like our first full-blown tour that we had ever done of Canada. And he comes in without any rehearsal and we start the first date. I mean, that's the kind of guy he is, you know, he's like so well prepared and he comes in, you know, with a, his great attitude. That was the one thing that we were, we were struck by Joel and Eric as well, is their attitudes are so like, you know, Oh yeah, you want to try this? Let's try this, you know? And, 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 and so it's really been a joy having the both of them. It really is. Um, I want to look back on this album, Midnight Madness, because we are in its 35th year. It's been 35 years since it was released, October of 1983. It has one what? of your... Nobody told me. Right, right? I mean, time goes fast, doesn't it? Um, but of course, it's got one of your greatest songs, one of the ones that I certainly uh, enjoy the most. You can still rock in America. Talk to me a little bit about yeah. getting into the studio and recording that one. And of course, you writing Sister Christian, because that is right. That's your calling card at this point. Uh, talk you know, to me about, about uh, that um, album, right? Yeah, fair it's, fair well, enough. It's, it's interesting how that turned out, too, right. because, you know, um, when, you're, when you're coming out of, um, you know, where we came out of clubs in, in San Francisco and L.A. and, and you know, wanting to be a, you know, like a you know, full on rock band and then. And then uh, everybody attaches themselves to, to one song, which happens to be like a rock ballad, you know, um, you know, so so the whole thing comes comes about um, after Dawn Patrol. Um, Bruce Bird, our you know, the record exec at the time for Camel um, comes to us and says, you know, Boardwalk is is over with, you know, that's the that's the album we were touring on with Don Patrol. The label um, was, was Boardwalk. And he comes to us and says, you know, um, you know, they're, they're closing their doors, you know, and, and we're in, we're just ending a tour with Sammy Hagar playing hometown dates and there's no records in the record stores. And we're being told, you know, like by fans, they're like, you know, where can we buy your record? And we were like, what are you talking about? And then we just like did some more research and then, and then Bruce Bird comes to us and says, that's the end of the label. And we have to go in and make another record right away because, you know, we're making a deal with MCA records and, um, you know, we need to get another record out there and, and j just so we don't lose our momentum. So, so there, you know, there you have it. We had a few songs left over from Dawn Patrol and, um, so we were just like, you know, suddenly panicked. We were like, oh, my God, you know, we have to somehow make this happen. So within two weeks of getting off of a, a, a major tour, we had to go right into rehearsals and find, you know, find music and find songs and find ideas. And, you know, Sister Kristen was left over, um, was one of the songs left over from uh, Dawn Patrol that we were actually performing in clubs before we got signed in 1979 and 80. And, and it, and, you know, it was kind of a different version of the song, you know, and it, and it you know, it, 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 uh, it became, you know, something after we jammed on it a bunch of times and over the course of a year or a half or so, two years, you know. So we go in and we start, you know, we start with material and ideas in, in pre-production, which is like, you know, a, a, in a rehearsal hall before you go in the studio and we're in there and we're like, 
we're just jamming away. We just have ideas, you know, coming out and, you know, and they're, and they're being written almost on the spot. And, and then we revisited, you know, of course, Sister Christian and, and um, Rocket America came out then, you know, that uh, during those rehearsals. And, you know, it was like all of us contributing, um, you know, uh, arrangement ideas and, and, and how that, that song came about as well as like, you know, when you close your eyes and, you know, and, um, other songs like, you know, um, let them run rumors in the air, you know? And so, you know, I mean, that's kind of the, the, the panic that we were kind of under, you know, like, okay, you got two weeks. And we were like, what, you know, we just got done, you know, um, we were on the road for six months. We haven't even like dropped our bags and, you know, and washed laundry. <laughs> so there's where, there's where we were at at that point. Those were good days where they, they forced you back. Let me ask you a couple more questions on that album. Brad Gillis, of course, in 82 had done the Aussie stuff. When you got around to Midnight Madness, was there any sort of talk about him not joining the band? Was there a talk of, you know, he's going to run off and do the Aussie thing? So was it a bit of a confusing time or did he come back and say, no, I'm committed to this band and I'm going to stick with like sort of what was your impression while he was off doing the Aussie thing? Were you scared that you would lose him? Oh, sure. Of course. You know, I mean, especially when uh, Westwood one, your network um, was, you know, was uh, playing like some of their live uh, concerts, you know, and he was playing at the top of his game at that point. And Jack and I like, you know, we're like listening to the, um, the one from Memphis, I believe. And, um, we were like, oh my God, you know, he's playing so good and he's, he's going to be such a big star and he's doing so well and he's adapting, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, he won't be coming back. So, but after the tour went on and it ended and then there was going to be a long, uh, you know, like a, a lull before the, Ozzy did his next record, it was, it was so, you know, clear that, that um, when Brad came back, because we had to go in and finish the demos slash um, um, rest of the master tracks of Dawn Patrol at that point. We had to go in there because we had gotten a deal, you know, and he was like so committed. I mean, Brad was like, you know, look, um, you know, I was just kind of a side guy with Ozzy. It's Ozzy's band, you know, it's like, you know, and all of all of us were side guys, but this is my band. This is, you know, like the last, four or five years. And then prior to that, you know, was a band called Rubicon. You know, we were, we were playing, you know, and it was our music. It was, it's our sweat and our blood, you know? So there was really no, no question that Brad was, you know, committed at that point. And plus, you know, he was a big star. So that a lot of the, a lot of the news was, you know, that, you know, Brad's new, new band, you know? So, so it was nice. We were kind of at that point, we were on his coattails and it was really fortunate for us because, you know, we were getting he was getting all that press and then and then we were getting the attention. So it really helped, you know. And and I mean this in a joking way, but when when he came back and you were sort of, as you said, riding his coattails, did he come back as just Brad or did he come back with this new attitude like, hey, I'm the boss here, folks, and 
you're going to start. I mean, was there any kind of like weird tension within the band when he came back? No. Like, okay. He didn't throw his no, weight around. Okay. <laughs> Brad was Brad, you know, um, Brad was, you know, it was always Brad. He was like, but, but he had a confidence like, you know, um, and, and, you know, we respected that. And, and, uh, and it was, it was so great to have him back in and, and we enjoyed a lot of good times at that point. And then from then on and, until now, we still get along so well. I mean, the three of us started the band together. We're still together. We still write together. We still have a great time together, travel together. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, Brad, yeah, when he came back, he was just, he was definitely like, he was confident, but it wasn't, it wasn't about like, I'm going to take over. And it was never that. We were all equal and it was really, you know, it was really an, an amazing time for us. Okay, so he didn't come back as this cocky son of a gun or whatever. Um, no, 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 no. But but Brad's always got a cockiness about him. You know, he's always confident, and you know because of his abilities, you know, and that's what enables you to be confident is when you're when you you know you 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 know you know yourself and you know how you play and you know you're you know you're good at what you do. So yeah, but he came back. We we had a we had a great time. We had a great time carousing, doing our albums down in L.A., going to strip every night and you know and just and just having a great time yeah just a great guy and and i will say this if and i'm sure you've heard this before but he is certainly an underrated uh guitar hero i mean when we talk about guitar heroes we always go oh randy rhodes and and eddie van halen but brad has to be in that conversation at some point because he is just ripping i mean he is really really just great um oh my god i mean I mean, and we think the same way, you know, we're, we're like, you know, I mean, we don't like to, to rub it the wrong way, but we always go, you know, we look at the, the guitar magazines and we go, where the fuck is Brad Gillis? You know, how yep. come Brad Gillis isn't in the top five? You know, it's like, it's like, what the hell are these guys doing? You know, what are they reading? You know, uh, but, but at the same time, not to, not to knock any of the newer, newer guitar players at all, but you just have to like go back and go look at the work that he's done and the success that he's had. And the, you know, go, him going into, into the Aussie thing. And, 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 you know, I mean, if people only knew his audition with Ozzy was in a hotel room with no amp and Ozzy, you know, sitting on the floor and Brad sitting on a bed and Brad playing his electric guitar with no amplifier and then playing some of the songs and, and Ozzy sitting there like, you know, like digging what he was doing and then immediately announcing it to everybody. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, there's, that's no small feat. You know, I mean, that's, that's like, that's like major, you get thrown into the fire and you come out, you know, with flying colors. That's what Brad Gillis has done. And that's how freaking good he is, you know? Oh yeah. And uh, back to midnight madness for a second here. Uh, the song You Can Still Rock in America, which I told you is one of my favorite ones that you do, it has always been said that Glenn Hughes, formerly of Deep Purple and stuff, provided backing vocals on that. Uh, talk to me about that story. How did that sort of story start, and, and how did you get Glenn in there to provide backing vocals on one of your greatest tracks? Well, I mean, at the time, um, when we were um, down there making the first album and the second album, since they came in succession, you know, um, we had uh, come to know Glenn through just, you know, meeting people around Hollywood and stuff like that. And he lived in, in the Valley 
and he, you know, he, we'd see him out, you know, once in a while. And we were, we were totally awed by him because he is, you know, from trapeze and then into deep purple and, you know, and his abilities were as a singer and a bass player and a writer. I mean, and, and then we just, we became very good friends. I think through Jeff Watson met him and then we would hang out, you know, some, sometimes, you know, late at night and, and, uh, and, and talk to him and, you know, and just learn and this and that. And then he would come and he'd come to the studio at the end of the day. And then when we'd go, you know, have dinner, we'd go out and go out and have a few, few drinks or a few pints, as he'd say. And uh, so that's how he came to uh, be in the studio at the time when, when it was like, you know, we were thinking, Oh yeah, we got this, you know, we, we got this really high part that, you know, Brad's would sing, but it won't sound, you know, maybe it won't be the same sound. Maybe let's try something different. Let's try somebody else singing very high in, in their, in their head tone, you know, without falsetto. And so we just said, Hey, well, Glenn, you know, it's like suggested to him, Hey, well, you know, I mean, are you like open to coming in and maybe singing this? And of course he was like, Oh, sure. You know? And he goes in there and I think it was only like maybe 10 minutes before he had the part singing, the choruses on on the, the and the very high parts because if you know Glenn's voice you know he's limitless in his range and and power and so when we brought him in you know we were just like we're like holy shit you know it's like hey man back away from that microphone <laughs> you're gonna blow it up you know it's like I mean he's just like he's just one of those phenomenal you know, freaks of nature and unbelievable singers that everybody knows, you know, and just at that point, he wasn't doing anything. And he was, he was there kind of like supporting us and we brought him in. It was, it was a really, it was really a wonderful kind of like a, a moment for us. Oh, he, he, Glenn is great. I mean, he, he, he is, he's the voice, right? He's one of these guys. Um, oh my God. yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me take you back about, I guess, six years now, 2012, uh, you released the acoustic album, 24 Strings and a Drummer. And we were talking about how great Brad was before, but this combination of Brad and Joel and, and you guys, uh, talk to me about that album, because the way you put it out, the way you rearranged everything was was just simply brilliant. And is there a chance that you might do uh, now, in 2018 or 2019, a tour that would feature the acoustic arrangements, or maybe think of doing a part two? You know, that's interesting. We haven't thought about part two because I think that, you know, at that point, that kind of says it all that album does for us acoustically. It really does. Um, you know, I mean, it was it was really fun to make. And plus, it was like, you know, you know, with with, you know, 150 of our closest friends and in the studio, really, really intimate and stuff like that. So we we were nice and relaxed and we could be creative and and, and not pull any punches, you know, and. And just let it flow and just let the mistakes or if there were any happen and just, you know, and embrace them. And, you know, but we've, we've been doing like every, every, you know, I, I want to say a few months we get asked to do one of those shows and they're not very well publicized in, in the last, um, since, since that album was made, but we do do them. And, um, you know, we, we absolutely enjoy them. I mean, in fact, we even embellish on the theme you know, we get to like play stylistically kind of like go out and, and, uh, and push the boundaries of, of what we had laid down on those tracks, you know? So, um, 
yeah, so we do get to do it, and we and we we uh, we wish we could do like fifteen or twenty days of those and make it a special, uh, you know, tour. But um, so far, you know, we're kind of been concentrating on making these albums and touring electrically and and doing this, you know. So so um, you know, maybe in the future, who knows? Oh, I'd, I I would I would love to see it, and and I know, like for example, Kiss before their big electric shows they do these little meet and greets where you pay a whole bunch of money to see the band do some some acoustic songs i would i would even go for that if you if you ever got to that um let me bring it here to quickly to 1995 this feeding off the mojo album which at the time given the context of the music and all that fans were like "Eh, what is this as we have moved away from that people are like you know what this album actually had some moments here. Let, let's let's rediscover this. Talk to me a little bit about that one because this was the one where Jack Blades wasn't involved, and you said we're going to make this. We're going to call it Night Ranger. Um, maybe the you know the right album at the wrong time. Now what are we here? Thirteen, fourteen years later, there's an appreciation right. for it. But but talk to me about that album and that decision and and how do you look back on it? Because I know fans have looked back on it and said. Yeah, we shouldn't have ignored it then. How, how do you sort of look back on it now? Well, I mean, I feel like there's always a place for for um, the music, you know. Um, and and I, I felt like we did a, a bunch of great work on there. Wrote with some a, a couple of outside writers, and and but but as a band, the three of us, Gary Moon and Brad and myself, we became like a new band. And it was it was we were embracing it. and It was really fun. We had a great time together. We did a lot of playing together. So when we got to, to the point of making that album and writing the album, we were really at, um, at, at a good point, um, you know, music, um, musically, you know, musically and also uh, with the writers. And uh, the writing of the songs was really a joy with that. We had a great time. The decision to use the name was kind of like you know um brad and i and bruce bird who was the manager prior to the band breaking up and then he was managing us at the time um is no longer uh with us anymore he's been uh that's passed on for uh, many years but he was such a close friend and and advisor and at that point you know he he felt like you know having a new name would would be a detriment to the, the music because that ultimately ultimately that was his goal was to have the music get played so he was you know he decided and and we all i, I mean you know I, I mean after the fact you know of course i was i i kind of regretted using the name because it wasn't night ranger you know but we were we were kind of like um torn between having the record just fall in the cracks and go nowhere or actually having some of that music get played and it did you know at the point when we released it it was getting played on some of some of the major uh you know got got added to some of the some of the radio stations so we you know we we were thankful for that you know but i thought it was a great record i really enjoyed making the record it was it was a tough record to make because there were no at that point you know there were no major labels involved so it was like we had to um like I shipped a studio from where I was living in the Midwest to Austin, Texas, into a rehearsal hall, set up all the mics. And, and back then it was tape, 16 track, 
and I was uh, with David Prater, and and David Prater was was you know a, a major producer at the time. He'd done Dream Theater, he'd done done um, many bands, and done successful uh, you know albums with them. And it, he showed me so much about how to produce a record and how to engineer a record in those environments, which was a totally complicated uh, way of doing it because, you know, you're in a rehearsal hall and there's other bands re- rehearsing right next to you, you know? So we had live mics and then we cut the drums there. Then we went into a house and we mic'd up guitar amps and stuff like that in, in closets in, in Austin and made that record. It's not the best sounding record, you know, uh, when you talk about the records we've been making lately. Um, but I'm so proud of how that record turned out. Um, you know, musically, the songs I thought were great. Um, Gary, Gary Moon, hell of a singer, different type of singer. You know, um, great guy. And, uh, you know, there you go. And we wrote some good songs and, and, it, and it, it saw the light of day. And I'm really, really proud of it. Yeah, and, and and as far as using the name, I would have to say, listen, you, you spent 13 years establishing a brand, not just a band, and then all of a sudden you're just not supposed to use it. I mean, of course you are. I mean, why why should you not reap the the rewards of your hard work for over a decade? I mean, that, to me, that's how I see it. I say, hey, that's that works for me. Um, 35 years. You think that way? Well, I mean, I, I really do because it really is a brand, and and. Uh, it takes a lot of hard work and, and, and know-how to build something, and then that somebody decides they're leaving or whatever, and you, why you can't use the name anymore. To me, that, that means unhold – seems unfair. I agree. I agree. I and agree. that applies to Kiss, and that applies to Aerosmith, who, you know, when, when Joe left. And all these bands, I mean, you build something, and then yeah. oh, somebody leaves, and oh, you can I mean, you know. Um, 35 Years and a Night in Chicago was the package that came out in uh, 2016. A great uh, package. That's that's the one that finally had Carrie Kelly uh, on tape, right. if you want. Just talk mm-hmm. to me, though, overall about the career, because when you look at 35, and now we're going on to, what, 36, 37 years, um, just talk to me about the changes that you've seen over the years and the fact that you're still here, because we all know that there are one-hit wonders, and there, there's bands that come in and have two-year careers and three-year careers and seven-year, and there's a bunch of people that are playing in their living room and will play in their living room for their entire lives. Um, it's amazing. Um just, just talk to me about the um, the fact that you're still here and still doing it. And if you look at your last two records, or actually the last three records, Somewhere in California, High Road, and Don't Let Up, really are probably three of the best records you've made. Uh, you're not even just calling it in anymore. You're still delivering the goods. Well, we figure, you know, if we're not going to retire, it's like, why, you know, why do it halfway? Why just stand up, like when we go to perform, why just stand up there and just, you know, go halfway through. It's like, it's like, that's why we're here. We're here to work. You know, this is almost, this is a, like a working class band. When we go out there, we want to, we want to let the audience know that we're not going to call it in. We're not going to just, you know, just, just stand up there and play the song that it's about, you know, this is our life, you know, and we're, we're proud of it and we want them to be a part of it, you know? So, um, so the, the whole thing is, is, once you know, once you're in, you're in. You know that's that's the way all of us think. 
Barry, Eric, you know, Brad, Jack, myself, or, you know, we're all, we're all in this to, to not, it's not about making money at this point, you know, it's about, it's about, you know, furthering on the idea of a life and a career in music. And we are, we are so proud to be here and grateful. I, I got to tell you, you know, it's like every day. I mean, we get in the circle before we go on stage and, and it's almost like a prayer. You know, we get in there, we, we, you know, we, we, we get in the circle, we put our, you know, we put our hands on each other and we go, okay, here, here we go. You know, um, another night, you know, let's, let's make it, you know, as good as we can, you know, and we just do those things that, that bring us into that light of, you know, we're going to do 120% every night. And in the studio, when we go into the studio, we have to, we can't just, just have filler songs. Every song's got to mean something. Otherwise throw it out and write another one. You know, what, what's your hurry? You know, we don't have a, a label that's breathing down our necks anymore going, well, I mean, I mean, Frontiers does, I mean, I, uh, to their credit, yeah, yeah Seraf- Serafino is, is, is a, mm-hmm. right. Serafino is a, is a slave drive. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but but it, yeah. you do have right you you do have that that luxury and I'll call it a luxury because in eighty two and eighty three and eighty four it was get in, get in the studio get in the road write me a single and let's do it again and now you can sort of say like you said hey if this song's not good enough we're gonna take an extra month and we're gonna make it good enough and that's what happens when that's you exactly have exactly right yeah and that's what happens um, when I you mean, have, like when we when we put out Man in Motion you know we turned it in without a ballad on it. <laughs> And they just laughed and they said, oh, we want another Sister Christian. Are you kidding? We're not going to we're not going to put this out now. So we went back and wrote a song called Restless Kind. And then they put out I Did It For Love. You know, it's like a song that we didn't even write. So at that point, we were like, "Okay, we we want to have control over what we do musically. You know, what songs we write, what lyrics we sing, you know, Um, and so that's, that is a luxury. That's a huge luxury. And I, I have to tip my hat to Serafino because he's passionate about the music and he also trusts us, you know? And of course, you mentioned I Did It For Love, uh, written, of course, by Ra- or, uh, Russ Ballard, who has written some great stuff. You know, the Kiss guys have done it. And it's just amazing to me that Russ writes all these amazing, amazing songs. And yet it's other artists that have success with his songs. It's... He, Great songwriter though, um, and, and I'll oh, finish. Unbelievable. Oh, unbelievable! Love him. Love, yeah. Russ is great, and and I'll finish with this because I know we only had half an hour, but I, I'm I've always oh, been okay. curious. Uh, the shows I've seen, and and of course your stage setup. You're you're not a drummer that's in dead center. You're always off to the side. Um, explain that to me. I, I don't get it. Why are you not in the back like every other drummer at every other thousand of shows I've seen? Why are you sort of off to the side? And it's, I know it's a completely silly question, but it's my own curiosity. Because I freaking demand it. Don't you understand? <laughs> <laughs> Is no, it because I mean, Jack uh, needs to have the center the stage? No. Yeah. Hey, man, I'm the strongest guy on the stage. I can kick anybody's ass. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, the, how it came about was um, uh, actually, Alan Fitzgerald, our our, um, our old keyboard player. Correct. Before we got signed, we got asked to do a small tour in California with Sammy Hagar, a good friend. You know, at that point, he had like a Trans Am car on stage. And we're like, 
we're like really and like where are we gonna where are we gonna put we're gonna put a drum set and a keyboard uh, riser you know so and at the same time we were like well how you know how are we gonna do this with with, with me singing you know some of the songs and so that was that was the idea is like let's try this weird setup and so originally we had the the dr- drum platform and the keyboard platform in the middle but I was turned sideways you know. Um, so there's some really old like pictures of, of that setup, but then we realized, God, if we split it off, you know, side to side and then leave a space in the middle, it's like there suddenly we look like, you know, we have a show we can, we can put on a show and not have, you know, like four feet, you know? So that was the whole idea it was just out of, it was like a utilitarian thought, you know, it's like, let's just, you know, out of need, let's like create a space. And then, then it, we just stuck with it because me being a singer, people, people could see me sing at that point, you know? So it was like, Oh, this kind of works for both things. You know? I see you're, you're going to need a, a rotating platform so you, you can spin around so everybody can see that. That's the next step right there for you. Um, great pleasure. I mean, we, we've done two or three of these over the last few years. Uh, always a great pleasure. I will be seeing you at the M3 Festival in May. Uh, great, great festival. Man. Yeah. It's make, such a great... Like, uh, make sure you um, make yourself known so we can uh, see each other face to face. That would be great. Yeah, I would absolutely love it. And uh, always a pleasure. We, we, Like I said, we've done a couple of these in the last couple of years. In fact, one for every album in the last few years. And uh, wow, just great albums, great stuff, and uh, bands great. Just the bands, just it's you know, it's nice to see that you're not, uh, you know, fading into the distance with a whimper. You're you're still out there pounding it, and I, I love that. So much respect. I feel like I'm fading into the distance this week. I'm I'm sick. I got that whatever everybody else has got, you know, with a cough and a this and that, and I'm on antibiotics, but. I'm, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be better by next week when we get back to it. Thank God we got 10 days off and I got sick right at that point. I'm like, Phew. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You see, you're, I got to tell you, my, my, my next interview was supposed to be guitarist Robin Trower and they had to cancel oh, because he's hospitalized right now because he has the flu and it was so severe that they had to hospitalize him and it's just like oh my goodness you know it's it's yeah so so do take care of yourself as a fan we we need rob and you and all the other rockers to keep going so yeah (laughs) thanks much i appreciate it i look forward to seeing anybody you too thank you have a good one take care cheers bye-bye now back to rock talk with mitch lafon and uh, just before I get over to uh, Moby talking about his new album, Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurts, I have got uh, Guns N' Roses, former Guns N' Roses manager and Great White, Alan Niven, on the phone again. Good day. I, I was going to say sir, but I can't say sir. So good day, uh, monsieur. Hmm? Good day, Mitch. And uh, <laughs> I hope you're good. And how yes. did your conversation with Moby go? It was a great conversation, actually. We we talked about uh, veganism. We talked about his his love for hard rock, heavy metal, and all this wonderful stuff. But what we didn't talk about, because well, I forgot, uh, was his involvement with the Guns N' Roses Chinese Democracy album. And so I know that, of course, by that time in their career, you were far out of the Guns N' Roses milieu. Uh, as we say here, but but were you aware at all at the time that he was being tapped 
to to do this Chinese democracy thing? And, and if yes, what was sort of your reaction? Because he's, you know, yes, he has a, a metal background in the sense that he was in a punk band and stuff, but that's not where he cut his 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 teeth in terms of production. I found it very interesting when I heard that Moby was uh, going to take a shot at the helm um, of the recording. My understanding was that former lawyer to, the, to Guns N' Roses, Peter Paterno, uh, who had gone on to run Hollywood Records, came up with the idea and suggested Moby uh, to the uh, GNR camp. And I thought it was interesting because Moby's past didn't suggest uh, the kind of blood, sweat and tears rock and roll that um, I kind of thought that GNR was. So it seemed to indicate to me that there was a, a definite determination in the recording to make the band sound and feel very different from what had already been established. And I rather wondered whether it was, you know, sometimes I think you can be a little overly aware of what I would call your competition, um, Nine Inch Nails, so on and so forth, and how they were sounding. And sometimes you can be a little overly aware of your competition and maybe move to be contemporary. And in doing so, perhaps you risk losing your signature. And your fan base. That might be the I rather wondered if that might be the case in that situation. Yeah, and I don't want to use the word contrived, but that, that's almost like it, what it sounds like. We're, we're just trying so hard to be different. We're just trying so hard to not be the appetite band. Uh, you know. But, but that said, uh, at the end of the day, um, Chinese Democracy as an album it didn't of course sell as well as people expected but i think if you listen to the songs that are on there and some of the playing that's on there and if you listen to those songs now live with duff and slash they're actually decent songs you know it 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 turned out okay with with hindsight but boy when when you say to me moby is going to come produce guns you go mm, i'm not so sure about that but hey well, you know, everybody's got their own viewpoint and everybody's got their own opinion. Um, but I personally, when recording, have always been a little suspicious of what is deemed contemporary. Yeah. And personally, for me, what I look for is something that I hope will be realized as a little more timeless. Um, and to me, that's an organic thing. Um, I hated drum machines. They were too perfect. Um, there were certain amplifiers that I didn't connect to because they lacked the organic quality that I love in an amplifier that you find in an old Fender or an old Marshall head. Um, and I, th I think you've got to be very careful about being contemporary because sometimes when you're contemporary in the future, being dated. Yeah, you see... And, and you're very right with that, because when you look back at some of the early 80s music, whether it's Flock of Seagulls or not, and they're all doing that, that 80s keyboard. And I know people know what I'm talking about, that 80s keyboard that has that. When you're chasing the new thing, sometimes it ends up sounding dated. But that said, uh, I will say this, and you may or may not agree, but I think the song itself, Chinese Democracy, 
is one of the greatest songs GNR has ever uh, put out. And I know, I know I get gruff for this, but I really like it. And I really like what they did with them live. And I think when you put Slash's guitar on any of these songs, they become Guns N' Roses songs. So there you go. I I think that's an entirely valid observation. Um, You know, what, whatever his style uh, or what is closest to his heart, Axel's a good writer. He, you know, he's, oh, he's yes. not going to put he's not going to put rubbish out there. Um, and the minute that you have Slash involved, he, you've got one of the most articulate and expressive players to ever breathe. Of course, it's going to take the song to another level. Um, this might surprise this might surprise you, but I rather wish that the core of GNR would write together again. I think that would be a very interesting thing to have happen. That if you had an Izzy song and Axel's lyric and vocal and Slash's guitar playing, I think you have the potential there for something serious and magical. Oh, I, I fully agree. And not only did Slash's guitar playing take these songs to the next level, Slash's guitar playing in 2016 and 2017 were some of the best playing he's ever done. I mean, you know, usually as artists get older and, you know, baseball players, their skills diminish, but I think Slash's skills have actually increased in the last couple of years. I, I, I think that is... Uh an observation that no one can deny. He's playing the best he's ever played. Yeah. And it, it, it's interesting. When he turned 49, uh, he had a little bit of a, a meltdown on me, ruining the fact that next up was 50. And I said to him, listen, and listen good, if I could get one decade back to relive, it would be my 50s, because that's the best balance of body, mind, and soul that I've experienced. And I said to him, your best decade is about to come. And I think I'm being proved right. I think he's playing better than ever. I think he's in a really good headspace. And this is going to be the apex of his life is the next eight or so years. Yeah. And by but, the way, of course, I... once, it, once he hits 60, it's all over. <laughs> well, listen, as somebody who's about to enter the realm of 50 this year, uh, we'll have that conversation in a couple of months as I get closer and closer to it. Oh, well, yeah, we'll see about that. But uh, and, and I'll finish with this, with the, with the GNR stuff. Uh, I don't think the band should obviously go back in the studio and re-record these songs, but I would like to see them put out a live album or even an EP where these songs are featured being played the way they're being played today um, you know with Duff and and with Frank and with Slash and with Melissa and just the whole band because those shows and those songs they just they just sounded the way they should have sounded when the album came out in um, but when was that 2008 9 2008 right ten, it's, wow it's 10 years since, uh, well, GN, since, if, wow. if, if, if somebody was smart, they would have recorded the show in Harlem uh, because I, everybody who had uh, the grounds to make comment on it said it was far and away the most excellent show of the entire tour. And, of course, you can readily 
comprehend that when you think of them taking the momentum and power of their stadium shows and compressing it into a small theater. It must have been very intense. So I'm hoping somebody recorded that, and I'm hoping one day it'll come out. Well, you know what? They did because it was a serious XM special uh, that ran on air um, repeatedly for, for a couple of weeks, if not a month at that time. So it exists. Sirius XM probably owns the rights to it, but at some point there's got to be some kind of give and take negotiation where they could have it put out for the rest of the world to enjoy uh, on a more permanent basis. So fingers crossed on that. Put it on vinyl. Or CD because CDs sound better. (laughs) 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 See, we're going to have that debate, but uh, instead of debates, let us listen to Moby. New album is everything was beautiful and nothing hurt, which is obviously not a song written for a 50 year old, but here is the one, the only Moby. We are speaking with Moby. The new album is Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt. Uh, Moby, pleasure to have you on today. Um, let's get right in to this album. Talk to me about putting it together and the concept behind it. Well, I guess part of it is within the broader context of being a 52-year-old musician making an album in 2018. And what I mean by that is, one... Very few people pay attention to albums in 2018, and people especially don't seem terribly inclined to pay attention to albums made by 52-year-old musicians who don't tour in 2018. So to that end, when I'm making an album now, I really, the primary satisfaction has to be the act of making it, because there's no guarantee that anyone will ever listen to it. I mean, if someone does listen to it, I'm flattered and it makes me happy. But, you know, if we were doing this interview, let's say 15 years ago, I would work under the assumption that lots of people would listen to an album I'd make. And now I can't make that assumption anymore. Okay. So talk to me about that. Cause the album is a lost art. You know, we, we've got, we've taken away the, the artwork, the physical artwork, or the, the pictures on it, and, and we've reduced it to sort of air with MP3s and all that nonsense. Um, how do you sort of get people interested in listening to the 12 tracks? Why not just put one song on iTunes or Spotify and say, okay, folks, and I'll be back at you in three months? Why sort of make the effort to come up with a cohesive 12-song album? It's a, it's a very legitimate question and it's one that my manager asks me all the time um i've worked with the same manager now for 28 years and he ridicules me constantly for making albums he basically he's german and he just insults me and says oh you're just making an album because you're so old uh and i think as funny as that is there's also some truth to it you know i grew up with albums you know I mean, the first job I ever had was working as a caddy at a golf course, and I worked there just long enough to make some David Bowie albums, I mean, to buy some David Bowie albums. So I grew up loving albums, and I still love making them, even though, as I said, it is 2018, and the album as a commercially viable form, you know, it's depleted to the point of, you know, almost quasi-irrelevance, but creatively... As I said, I still love making them, and I try really hard to make something create. I mean, uh, cohesive and worthwhile, even if no one or very few people are willing to listen to them. 
Yeah, and, and it's a shame. We're, we're, we're losing that experience. I, I know for myself, I like to buy CDs and I like to get the vinyls and stuff because that's part of the, the pleasure. I mean, I think we all sat in our rooms and, you know, in the 70s and 80s and pulled out the liner notes and, and read who did what and sang along to the songs. And now we it's just disposable. Um, you did mention that uh, the touring, it's something that you don't do. You've said in the past that touring to you was basically just sort of sitting around hotels and buses and sort of hanging around, not being creative. Uh, talk to me about that and the importance of being creative, staying creative, being next to a studio and getting in there and, and putting down the ideas as they come out. And at some point, does that change? And you say, okay, I have a fan base that needs to see me put on a two-hour show. Well, uh, I mean, I think some people are frustrated with me because I pretty much categorically refuse to tour. Um, and part of that is just, I guess, the realization and acknowledgement that life is short and I don't really want to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again with diminishing results if I don't have to. And, you know, especially because there's so many other things to do in the world, you know, there are things to learn and there are new places to see and, you know, different weird experiences to have and causes to get involved in. Um, and the idea of just sitting on the same tour bus or the same hotel or the same airport or the same backstage, I just really find that, you know, to be a, a compromised use of what seems to be the only life I've been given. And, you know, I still love playing music. I just don't want to give up my life to go, you know, sit in a hotel room for six months. Yeah, it, it sort of breaks the spirit. Now, now you mentioned uh, other projects. I want to go back to 2010. Uh, I personally come from a rock metal background, and I normally, you know, you normally interview Metallica and stuff. Uh, talk to me about Diamond Snake and, and that project to get out there and do something just a little more aggressive and certainly different than what you're known for? Well, I, I grew up with a very odd musical background. When I was very young, I played classical music. And then uh, in high school, I played in punk rock and speed metal bands. Because on one hand, there was sort of antipathy between the punk rockers and the metal kids but right in the middle of it were certain bands like Metallica and DRI and other, you know, like almost hybrids of punk and metal. Um, and I'm sure anyone listening, there are probably some people who think that what I've just said is heresy. <laughs> but I remember it was a really big deal when uh, Metallica, I think they covered a Killing Joke song and they yep. think they covered a Misfit song. Yep. And... And now the lines are are really blurred. You know, like all my friends who are in hardcore punk bands love speed metal, and all my friends in metal bands love you know old punk rock records. You know, where you know you go to see Slayer, and you know the drummer's wearing a Bad Brain shirt, and then you know go to see a punk rock band, and they're wearing a Biohazard shirt. So. The lines are definitely blurred, and for me, uh, I I guess yeah, about ten years ago started this very light-hearted glam metal band with some friends called Diamond Snake, and honestly, it was just like a fun 
a fun thing to do with some friends. What made it odd was how talented the other musicians were. Like, we would be playing, and we were doing it for fun, and I'd have these moments where I'd realize, like, oh, if, if this was 20 years ago and we were doing this professionally, this would actually be really good, because, like, the drummer was amazing, the singer was amazing, the guitar, the lead guitar player was amazing, so it was fun, but with, like, way more aptitude and ability than was necessary. Yeah, and it, it really was a fun project. Hopefully you'll revisit at some point. You also did Void Pacific Cry Choir. Um, talk to me about this this desire to sort of go outside, and, and, and excuse the name, but Moby Brand, and do these other projects. And why not just sort of everything just is Moby, and I have this artistic freedom to have a metal album, to have a Pacific, you know, Void Pacific Choir. Uh, why sort of separate them into different um, group names, if you want? I guess some extent there's the recognition that you know genre has become increasingly arbitrary and what i mean by that is in the old days genre made a lot of sense when a rock record was made in a completely different way than let's say an electronic music record but now a lot of rock records and a lot of electronic records and other types of records they're all made with the same equipment. And, you know, as we were talking about earlier, we live in this world where very few people pay for music. So people can be a lot more, we we'll almost call it promiscuous with their genres. You know, because like when you and I were growing up, you found a genre that you loved and you would buy albums within that genre. And that album really reflected like a significant percentage of your net worth. You know, like, I would, if I had $20 in the bank when I was growing up, I would try and buy two albums and I'd go broke, but at least I'd have albums. So you really needed to know what you're getting into. Whereas I feel like now people can, you know, can experiment a lot more in what they're listening to. And in terms of making music, like as odd as this might sound, I really don't want to have a career as a musician because in a way, I had this realization, I guess eight or nine years ago, that music to me is precious and potentially beautiful and potentially even sublime, whereas commerce and career are, are tawdry and cheap. So for me, I would much rather prioritize the potential beauty and creativity of music than make decisions from a career you know, to, to maintain a career. So, in fact, it's almost gotten to the point where if if it seems like I should do something that will benefit my career, I've become weirdly contrarian or I'll do exactly the opposite. Yeah, and, and, and it's funny because, you know, the new sort of key word in rock has become brand and, and we think of Kiss and we think of Journey and we think of all those bands. They can change all their members as long as the brand name stays, everybody's going to be happy. Um, the book Porcelain, the uh, the memoir uh, that you wrote uh, a few years ago, uh, talk to me about why stick to 89 to 99 before the major success because usually those kind of books are somewhat voyeuristic, and we want to get in there, and we want to see, oh, you know, the, the backstage parties, and we want to get all this stuff, and we want to see the success and sort of climb the ladder with you. But you chose to limit it to sort of before play took off. Um, 
Talk to me about sort of the vision with that book, and will there sort of be a part two at some point that explores the years after? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the process of finishing part two. Okay. And the reason I wanted the memoir, uh, you know, the, the period covered in porcelain to be that 10-year chunk of time was because so much happened during those 10 years, not just to me, but, you know, politically, um, in New York, culturally, uh, and it seemed like the sort of story that could be interesting and potentially even compelling for someone who either didn't like me or had no idea who I was. So I I think in in an odd way, like if you write about success, like success for a lot of people can be very generic, you know, like once a musician starts selling a lot of records, their experience becomes very similar to almost every other musician who sold a lot of records. Whereas I felt like my experience in the 10 years prior to that was a lot more idiosyncratic and unique. And it also represented a time that has really disappeared, you know, a time in New York, a time in culture, a time in politics, even though it's relatively recent history, it still feels like it was a completely different era. Yeah, it really was. Do you, do you look back at that with some remorse and, and, and some regret, or is it like it was it was what it was and it was fun, and I'm glad I've been able to experience it, but I'm also glad that I'm where I am today? I mean, there's, I think nostalgia almost always carries a degree of wistfulness, you know, because if you're remembering something wonderful, you're wistful that it's gone. And if you're remembering something sad, you're wistful that you experienced something sad. And But underpinning it all is just the simple wistfulness of getting older. You know, so like nostalgia for 10, 20, 30 years ago, it's sometimes a nostalgia for circumstances, but it's oftentimes just a nostalgia for youth. And And I can't take that too seriously. Like if I was the only person in human history who was getting older, then I would be really upset at the fact that I'm getting older. But the fact that every living thing that has ever been born has gotten older and died means that it's hard to take it too personally. Right. And and we're we're almost the same age. I'm I'm a couple years younger and, and I'm 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 feeling the stresses of getting old at this point. Um veganism. I, I, I want to have a discussion about that real quick. You know, when I'm left to my own devices, I'm fruits and vegetables all day. When my wife comes in and she cooks chicken, well, that's what that's what I'm eating, and but it's not my first choice. Um, talk to me about your decision. I know you you wrote an, an op-ed for Rolling Stone, but but talk to me about your decision to move into veganism and protecting animals. We have two rescue dogs at home, so it's very important to us as well. But why that decision and and you know, is that something that you should you would convince me to to switch to as well? Well, I mean, I assume that there's a good chance you and I or anyone listening had really similar upbringings. You know, when I was growing up, uh, I loved the animals that we lived with. You know, we had rescue dogs and rescued cats, and we had guinea pigs and gerbils and even some lizards and some baby mice, and I loved all of them. But I also you know, I was a kid living in the suburbs, so I loved Burger King, and I loved McDonald's, and I loved 
you know, pepperoni pizza and salami sandwiches. And when I was 19 years old, I had this moment where I was petting a rescue cat named Tucker. And I loved this cat so much. And all of a sudden I realized like Tucker had two eyes and a central nervous system and a rich emotional life. And I suddenly extrapolated and realized that every creature with two eyes and a central nervous system has a rich emotional life. And just as I couldn't eat my cat, I then realized I couldn't eat other animals. You know, and that was 30 some odd years ago. And it's been really interesting watching just the growth of vegetarianism and the growth of veganism. I mean, to put it in perspective, when I became a vegan 30 years ago, no one even knew how to pronounce the word vegan. You know, we didn't know if it was vegan or vegan or vegan. So it certainly has changed. And I'm sure that you're aware of this, but I also think it's really funny how many people in the metal and sort of like hard rock and punk rock worlds are vegan now. Oh, absolutely. You know, I I hang out at a lot of the festivals, uh, one in particular in Montreal is called Heavy Montreal. And in the catering for the bands and artist world, the biggest selection is vegetarian and vegan. And people think that, you know, they're all going to be back there slaughtering lambs and stuff. But it's really very unmetal, if you want, if that's, I don't know if that's the proper term, but you go back and you go, oh, look at so-and-so from Dimor Borgi or eating salad. And you go, oh, that doesn't seem very metal. And yeah, it really has changed, and it's 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 interesting. Yeah, well, like for example, um, I own a restaurant here in LA called Little Pine. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. And the other day, Doyle from the Misfits and Alyssa from Arch Enemy were in having dinner, and you know Doyle is like the biggest, toughest guy on the planet, and he's a militant vegan, and so many people in you know I was also in this other restaurant, Crossroads. And sitting next to me was Geezer Butler from Black Sabbath, who's a vegan. And I think it's really funny that percentage-wise, there are more peop- there are more vegans in metal bands than there are in gentle indie rock bands. And you'd think the exact opposite would be true, but it's uh, it, it's really surprising. Or like Rob Zombie comes into my restaurant all the time. Here's a a funny little bit of Rob Zombie trivia: is in high school. I was in a punk rock band called the Vatican Commandos, and uh, our bass player went to college, went to university, and Rob Zombie was his roommate. This was 1983, 84, and so Rob drew the artwork for our our second 7-inch called Just a Frisbee in 1984. That's a great story, and um, the other thing I was going to point out about veganism, because you were talking about sort of the historical perspective, and 30 years ago we didn't know how to pronounce the name. 30 years ago, if you told somebody you were vegan or vegan or whatever, they almost thought that you had some kind of mental illness. And, and it sort of moved on to like, no, this, this is – so it's nice to see perceptions changing and it's nice to see that stuff changing. It, it really is. Um, since you mentioned Little Pine, just, just talk to me about the restaurant being a business owner and, and sort of the trials and tribulations of that. Because I know in the music uh, field, you're very creative and stuff. Um, can you still, is there a creativity to, to owning a restaurant or, or is it just sort of black and white dollars and cents? I mean, there's some things where you can be very creative. Um, and also, one of the things that makes my restaurant really odd is that I run it as a nonprofit. So any money that comes into the restaurant goes to animal rights organizations. So it's, an, it's a strange form of entrepreneurialism in that I can never make a penny from it. Um, 
but the creativity is, you know, the way the restaurant looks, sort of the ethos of the restaurant, the food that's served, but it also, it's an interesting type of creativity because there is nothing arbitrary about it, you know, meaning, you know, you have to make food that you're able to make and that people want to eat. And if you go too experimental, people stop coming in. And if you go too obvious, people stop coming in. And you also have to be legal. Like, that's one thing. Like, there's no, there are no restrictions. There's no laws about making a, writing a book or making an album. Whereas if you own a restaurant, every last inch of the restaurant is governed by legislation and regulation. So it's a very constrained form of creativity, but it's still really interesting. And, you know, my goal with it is to, you know, represent veganism in a really sort of appealing and positive light. Yeah. And it's a, it's a restaurant. I definitely want to visit. Um, and then just before we go, uh, let's just quickly talk about play, uh, the album. Um, what was it about that album that sort of changed everything for you? You know, you look at, um, I like to score and there was a modicum of success and people sort of knew who you were but play just sort of went astronomical, just changed everything. Why do you think fans and fan base connected with that album? I, I still don't know. Um, <laughs> the only thing I can figure out is that it sounded, in a way, like nothing else that was being made at that time. You know, this was the late 90s, early 2000s, when the charts were filled with the Backstreet Boys and Limp Biscuit and Britney Spears and NSYNC and Play was this weird record that I had made in my bedroom. And, you know, when it was released, my career was basically over. You know, I was seriously thinking about what other jobs I could do. And I was convinced that, you know, after the release of Play, I was going to go back to university and get my doctorate and go on to become a philosophy professor or maybe you know, branch out and do architecture or something. But uh, I certainly, I'd never expected it to be anything other than a complete failure. So every bit of success it had was really surprising. In albums succeeding that or coming after that, did you ever think, okay, I caught lightning in a bottle, now let me try to do this again? Was there ever that urge to try to recreate it and say, I want to have play too, and you just never got there? Or did you say, okay, we've done this, now I move on, and it is what it is. Well, it's funny, because there are some... There, the two subsequent records that did well, which were 18 and Hotel, um, they both, in Europe especially, did as, as well as Play did. So I had this period of, you know, I was, to my shame, chasing success. You know, I wanted the follow-ups to Play to be equally successful and in some countries when they were it didn't really do me any favors in that you know i bottomed out as an alcoholic i bottomed out as a drug addict i kept touring and i found myself as the 2000s progressed um again this is shameful but i found myself thinking about career more than creativity and at some point, I realized that's what I was doing, and I was so repulsed by that. You know, so that's one of the reasons why I don't tour, and why you know, with this new album that I'm putting out, 100% of the profits goes to charity. It's almost like a way of making amends 
for the ways in which I compromised in the past because I really don't I'm not proud of the fact that there was a period when I started prioritizing career. But I mean there's nothing wrong prioritizing career and and uh, I know we're running out of time, so I'll finish on this. Um, you worked with a lady named Melaine Farmer, and she was born in Pierrefonds, Quebec, which is about 10 kilometers from where I'm sitting right now and where I live. So she's very important to our sort of local color. Um, what was it like just working with Melaine Farmer and uh, working on that album Bleu Noir? It was really interesting because the way I met her is I used to own a little vegan cafe in New York called Teeny, and she started coming in and this was maybe 2001 2002 and we became friends and i had no idea who she was and then a couple months later i was in paris and i was walking down the street and i saw a picture of her on a poster and i said to someone from the record company i said oh i know that lady she comes into my restaurant and the guy from the record company started laughing and he said you do know she's the biggest artist in france like he sort of said, like, she's like Elvis meets Madonna, but bigger. Right. And, and I thought that was so funny because I thought she was just this nice lady with red hair who came into my restaurant. And we became friends and we worked on music together. And what I was so impressed with is, you know, she's such a superstar in France, especially. And she's so relaxed and down to earth. Like, you know, I've met a lot of very successful people and she just seems to live her nice normal life and you know and then occasionally go out and you know play concerts and stadiums right and 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 uh that seems to be sort of the the quebec ethos where you look at Celine Dion, you look at Milan Farmer, and you look at some of these people, there's just this down-to-earthness to quality to them, and then they go and play Vegas for, you know, 30 days in a row, and it's just like, wow, okay. Uh, Moby, yeah. absolute I mean, pleasure. So she, and I, she and I are still friends, you know, we still email often, and um, yeah, she's just a really nice, friendly lady, and like I said, I still think of her as, you know, just the nice lady who used to hang out in my restaurant. In, is zipping tea. Uh, Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt is the new Moby album. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Uh, you know, merci beaucoup, as we say in this part of the world. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, it was really nice talking to you as well, and uh, thanks. I'll hopefully talk to you soon. Absolutely. Cheers. Bye-bye now. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Mitch LaFond.